today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. When you don't produce enough stomach acid, lots of things fall apart downstream, right? But when you don't do actually build that pressure that pushes food the wrong way, you also maldigest food. So you have food that should be right almost this thing called chyme, which should be uh, like very mushed up and ready to go into the small intestine. You might have these large like proteins just sitting there and you're going to have worsening pressure, worsening fullness, and things can really push and sit on top of food and go the wrong direction. If you ever notice people who take supplements or medications after food instead of before the meal, they often complain of regurgitation and digestion because things are sitting on top of the food and not working well enough due to low stomach acid and it comes up and it's a really uncomfortable feeling. Hello, hello, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. And today I'm talking with good friend and gut health expert, Katie Mora. Katie is a functional medicine practitioner dietitian with a master's in nutrition. She is a go-to on all things GI related, including H. pylori, indigestion, and GERD, which we discussed at length today. If you or a loved one are experiencing any of these symptoms, listen up so you can be empowered. Before we get started though, I wanna talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that of course is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you are an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness. No need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you are a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's start the show. Katie Mora, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I am so excited to have you on today. I am so excited to be here. This is, you know, I love chatting with you and we've done it in the past and I'm so looking, we've never done acid reflux and stuff though. So I'm very excited. And a new topic for this podcast. And for those who are listening, I have been on Katie's podcast. So at the end, we will talk about all the places you can find her and listen to her. But this is the first time she's coming on here. And I'm actually really thrilled because we are discussing what topic to talk about because gut health is very much her expertise and what she educates on all the time. We realize very quickly that GERD or heartburn or acid reflux is often downplayed as, oh, that's normal, when in fact it's common, but not normal. So that's what we're going to talk all about today. So if you or a loved one are suffering from heartburn, acid reflux, little GERD, you've got on some proton pump inhibitors, or you're popping Tums all the time or something similar, this is the episode for you. Listen up. So let's get going. But before we get started, for people who don't know you, don't know that you're a gout health expert, give us a little background. How did you get into this? What do you do? What do you stand for? And then we'll get going. Do we have an hour? I know. <laughs> we do, actually. Let's <laughs> <laughs> talk about you. Actually. Yes. So I am, my original training is as a registered dietitian. So I actually have the traditional training. Behind me, I'm also a licensed dietitian nutritionist. After I finished school, did my internship, kind of started into the workforce, I decided to immediately go to the Institute for Functional Medicine. I was in that 
that initial group of a thousand individuals that was certified. I went through it all. So I am certified. And honestly, when I went to the Institute for Functional Medicine and I took the gut health module, it was like every light went off for me. Everything that ever felt confusing to me or incorrect about healthcare or how we were treating individuals. I was like, this is it. This is my jam. I need to go into it. And I immediately just started to learn and absorb everything I possibly could. And I was put into a really amazing situation, which is not very common, where I worked for a clinic for five, six years, where I was able to actually see like thousands of patients. And as a nutritionist taking over and being the lead of the gut health sector of the practice, that's not that common. So it was a really great learning experience. I was able to come up with my own tried and true protocols and like research everything from SIBO to H. pylori to acid reflux because I was seeing it day in and day out. And and now here I am with my own practice, got honest truth and loving it. Love my podcast. Killing it. Killing it out there. Yes. Full of education. If you don't follow her on social media, you should. We'll talk about that at the end as well. But I want to answer the juicy question first and then we'll like back up and go through the basics. So for people listening, why is it not healthy? to have heartburn, GERD, acid reflux, whatever you want to call it? Well, not only, right, just the obvious of it's impacting your day-to-day quality of life. No one wants that. But when, so there's the big misconception to kind of start with this, with any kind of indigestion, acid reflux, is that it's caused by too much acid. And that may be the case, and it might be the opposite, which we might talk about, which is low acid contributing. But it's more so where the pressure in the intra-abdominal cavity is pushing your acid up the wrong way, right? So we're getting acid exposure where it shouldn't be. It should be confined into the stomach, helping you digest your nutrients, your protein, a whole slew of things. When it goes up, you're getting this, right? We think of acid and how acidic and harsh it can be, it's hitting your esophagus, it's hitting your throat. It can cause irritation, it can cause inflammation. It can even be a predisposition to things like Barrett's esophagus, esophageal cancer, things that we do not want and are very, very preventable for most people. So it can absolutely cause ulcerations in the throat, lots of different conditions for people. Which I think a lot of people don't even realize, recognize, because maybe they get it just every once in a while, or maybe they're living on pills to try to tame it. And when they go to their practitioner to say, I get heartburn, I live on these pills, often, often in my experience, their practitioner is like, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. That's okay. Definitely take these pills to calm or quench the acid. And And sort of like they're working, right? Right. Yes. Yes. Even though you read a little fine print on the label and it's like four to six weeks at a time that you're supposed to be on it. And we sort of all just not all, I'm lumping everyone, but turn the other way, blind eye and say, well, if it's working, I'm helping my patient, right? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. All right, so back to the basics. What are the symptoms that people need to look out for? What are the common symptoms? And then what are the not so common, maybe hidden type symptoms that you've seen? Sure, so if you're experiencing indigestion and reflux regularly, you probably get a sense of fullness pretty quickly when you eat. You may notice that you're burping a lot or even regurgitating food as you eat after a big meal. You might even have constant nausea. You might have a lot of burning sensation, right? You're going to have, some people get excess saliva, which is interesting. Some of the more uncommon symptoms, people might get wheezing or dry cough. That's chronic. I know a lot of people with a dry cough, right? Or a hoarseness of their voice. I know for years, personally, back as like a teenager, I definitely had indigestion, massive reflux all the time. And I never had a voice ever, like 100% lost. So people can develop nodules, they can get hoarseness. There's lots of different things that we can experience. 
with having indigestion. But if you're someone who feels like it will be kind of right at the top of, we'll call it the abdominal cavity, where you feel like you have a pressure and you want to push on it a lot, people will get that. But when they're having silent reflux, sometimes it's a little trickier to know, right? Yeah. And can anyone have reflux? Right, a lot of that. Yes. Oh my gosh, I'm glad you said that because I had a patient who was constantly... Actually, it was a married couple. And the wife was like, my husband constantly clears his throat. And everyone thinks postnasal drip right from the top down, from the sinuses and stuff. But it turned out to be silent reflux. They didn't have any acid feeling or fulling, but they are constantly clearing their throat. A lot of people with that were coughing at night. And they're like, man, it only happens when I go down to lay down a bed. And it's like, well, if you go in the wrong direction, you're eating and the acid going the wrong direction as well. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So can anyone get it? We, We hear about it a lot with either like pregnant women, right? Super prone to to indigestion, but even kids. Anyone can get it. So at least 20% of the population experiences indigestion acid reflux and GERD on a weekly basis. So at least once a week, someone is, that percentage is experiencing it. Men can get it, kids can get it, women can get it. It has lots of obviously contributors. We do see it increase a lot for people as they're aging. So uh, 45 and up, I would say, you'll see a lot of people in that interestingly, is the percentage of people goes up that are on proton pump inhibitors, which is so the big cohort is probably like the 50 to 65 year olds are most likely on the PPI. And they are interestingly, the people who do have too little stomach acid production for the most part, which I definitely want to talk about because you're right that the excessive acid is what everyone thinks. I have so much acid. I'm too much. I make too much. Therefore, that's why it burns. That's why it hurts. Too much in the wrong place too much in the wrong place. Actually, so what is the mechanism of action? How do you even develop indigestion, heartburn in the first place? I mean, there can be multiple causes that are contributing, but for a lot of people, it's mostly that pressure that is building up and pushing things the wrong way. You can have things like hiatal hernias, right? A hernia is going to potentially even just, if you get acid on top of it, keep things in the wrong place, create worsening pressure. So that can be a big contributor for people as to why they're developing it is structural issues, they can have infections, right? Helicobacter pylori is a big one. I'm sure a lot of people, if they're listening, are at least familiar with the term H. pylori. Maybe had it ruled out, right? And that can contribute a lot to gastritis and, and GERD for people too. And then now definitely talk about the not enough acid part. Like how does that play a role? Yeah, similar to what to kind of be repetitive when you don't have, there's multiple things going on, but when you don't produce enough stomach acid, Lots of things fall apart downstream, right? But when you don't (laughs) do it, you do actually build that pressure that pushes food the wrong way. You also maldigest food. So you have food that should be right, almost this thing called chyme, which should be uh, like very mushed up and ready to go into the small intestine. You might have these large like proteins just sitting there and you're going to have worsening pressure, worsening fullness, and things can really push and sit on top of food and go the wrong direction, right? That's If you ever notice people who take supplements or medications after food instead of before the meal, they often complain of regurgitation and digestion because things are sitting on top of the food and not working well enough due to low stomach acid and it comes up and it's a really uncomfortable feeling. And that's really common. We hear that a lot in practice where people go, oh, I have supplements, I burp them back up. I have it not even fish oil, but like I hear B vitamins, multi certain herbs. I mean, I definitely hear that. If it should be with food, one simple thing is just trying to take it a few minutes before or like a few minutes into the meal and see how you do. That makes sense. That Okay. And then what about the one things we learn a lot about is 
It's like the sphincter down there. Oh, yes. The little part that's supposed to stay closed and, and keep it closed. Right, we have a sphincter on each end. Things are supposed to open to allow food to go through, enter the stomach, then you have another one that's going to close off. And it, you have all these sphincters going on in the body. But yes, when that gets loose, that's a problem. Whether it's from pressure, it's from... Some people have had endoscopies that actually open, right? Strictures and things. And I had a patient that last week that that was part of the issue. So if that sphincter is not doing what it should do, and it's loose, or we're having not strong muscles, we can do things to kind of strengthen that, then you might be experiencing acid reflux solely from that. Might not be a low acid issue, it's a structural issue, if you will. Yeah, and I love earlier that you said the hernia, because I think one, a lot of people probably have hernias and maybe don't realize it. I've had a number of patients who found out they had a hiatal hernia and had no idea. I mean, it just- Or a sliding hernia. Blew their mind. Yeah, sliding hernia, absolutely. Yeah. And there's stuff we can do about that that we don't hear about as well. Actually, because a lot other than maybe surgery, a lot of times it's here, try a, yeah. or try a PPI yeah, for acid and good luck. Yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh. That's really good. The strengthening of the sphincters can be really helpful there as well. If the hernia is so big, I mean, there are times, right, a surgery would be appropriate for someone, obviously refer to your physician in your specific case. But one thing I tell all my patients to do is hiatal hernia heel drops. So have you ever, do you use those with people? Yeah, yeah. They're really helpful. And you can easily look that up. I mean, it's just consuming room temperature water, like a large glass of it first thing in the morning. And then you're essentially going up on your toes and dropping on your heels about 10 times. And the whole point of it is that the pressure of the water should drop the hernia back under the diaphragm where it should be. So it's not the hernia, the stomach down under the diaphragm. So it actually can be really, really helpful. And it's something everybody can do. I even have patients that don't know they have hernias, try it and they feel great. I actually had, that's so funny. You said that I had a patient, we were trying to figure out some of their symptoms and I said, Hey, in the morning, I want you to start doing this. Yeah. Drink a full glass of water, go up on your tippy toes and slam down on your heels and do it about 10 times. And they sent me a message and they said, Holy crap, I feel so much better. I was like, well, we know what it is. <laughs> it's such a simple, safe thing for everybody to just try that. And there's practitioners out there that do hiatal hernia releases. Mm-hmm. So it also work that is not something I do, but you could work with somebody who's myofascial release expert or chiropractor that has training in that. When I was in school, actually, one of my mentors, he taught us the hiatal hernia release. And I definitely did it on patients when I was in full-time practice who I was- did they find it helpful? They found it immensely helpful. Yeah. And sometimes right in the moment. And so for those who are listening, it's a completely just on top of the stomach move that you do sort of like an abdominal massage, but it's very specific to how, where you're stomach, the top and bottom of your stomach are located around your rib cage and then you move it down. And I hadn't, I'm not an expert in it. I wasn't, that wasn't the thing that I did in practice. Hormones is what I focused in. But for the patients that I did it in, I, a number of times they would go, oh my gosh, I can feel it moving. I can feel it slide. I can feel it in my throat. I had a number of people say that maybe they just didn't try the heel drops, but they, I was like, you know, let me just try this real quick. You're in the office. Lay down. And everyone responds rightly to different things, but Body work and doing some kind of myofascial release or working chiropractic adjustments, whatever it is that works for you or you believe in or have access to can be one of the biggest things that you can do for gut health, like all types of things that we could talk about. Yeah. Really, really. Even just remembering, I mean, we got taught in school, but like, but not in general school, in our specific schools that, you know, our back, our nerves come out of our spine, right? And they innervate 
into our stomach and intestines and what have you. And so if you're experiencing a lot of back pain or back tightness or spinal issues, it often will affect the nerve innervation into the whole abdominal area. And which is, we'll have people that get into yoga. So they're twisting and they're stretching. Gentle, right? Gentle movement. They're like, oh my gosh, I've noticed a huge difference. Acupuncture on the back, chiropractic, whatever it is that works for them. They're like, oh my gosh, as I'm getting my back muscles or spine or whatever, Yes, my digestion is better. I was like, well, that's where the innervation comes from. <laughs> that's a really great point that everyone should know about, right? I wish. Moving in posture, everything that can affect what's going on in the stomach. And even my massage therapist does abdominal massage when she works on me and her, her big thing, she goes, nobody touches your belly anymore. Like when was the last time you, you got just a general regular massage and they did any kind of abdominal work? I have to ask. <laughs> to ask. Yeah, yeah. Usually it's off limits. It's forbidden. They don't do that. Even over the sheet, nothing weird or crazy, just over the sheet, going in circles or just doing some fascial stretching. And it's not common anymore. Especially if you've had abdominal surgeries, right? And if yeah. you've done full bladder, C-section, appendix, definitely look into getting body work on this Yes. I had a patient who had a tummy tuck. And so she had the smile scar from basically from hip bone to hip bone. And it was beautifully done. It was a beautiful scar. She was going to heal well on the exterior but within about a year, she started noticing all sorts of GI stuff, I think, because of scar adhesions with a scar that big. Yeah, I see it all the time. It really... Yeah, I bet. And people don't talk about it. We do. We're talking about it. <laughs> we do. I talk about it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I talk about it too much. Yep. Oh my gosh. Well, I want to go back to the water just for people, if you're wondering, what is the point of drinking a glass of water when you do the heel drops? That's the whole gravity and push down of the water is supposed to actually push your, push the diaphragm back, or gosh, I can't talk, the piece of the stomach coming up under the diaphragm. So it's supposed to put things back into order, essentially, of how they are. I don't know if you know more behind. No, that's what I, because what do you do? It's Yeah, it's like a simple concept, right? Yeah. You add weight to your stomach and then like a bag, it drops, it pulls right back down underneath the diaphragm. You have to drink quite a bit of water, which can be not lovely. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I mean... But it's better than taking a medication multiple times a day forever. And for some people, it's life-changing. Like people listening right now, give it a try tomorrow morning, especially if you're noticing any of these symptoms and see if it helps. Yep, absolutely. And in, in that freeing feeling. What about foods? We hear of common foods that are triggers for indigestion. What are the common foods and why do they seem to be the big triggers? I feel like I have a differing belief around the food and acid, right? There's an acid diet. We've all been there, especially if you're listening, you've probably tried it, right? You've moved caffeine, you've removed chocolate, different acidic, spicy foods, really fried foods, things that are going to be irritating to the lining, especially if you have gastritis, inflammation of the stomach, right? It can be very irritating if your tissue is inflamed, right? I find that it's very specific for different people, right? So for example, using myself, when I said I had acid reflux all the time, lots probably went into it, but I was trying to do the gluten-free thing, all these things you hear about and are, and we talk about, especially in functional medicine. And what did I replace everything with? Soy. I was just eating soy in different forms all the time. And I felt so sick all of the time until I did a true elimination diet, which is slightly obviously different than a low acid diet is when I felt better. So everyone can respond to different foods. And I find big triggers being like gluten, dairy, soy, eggs for some people. But if you are, let's say you have low stomach acid, right? It's harder to digest protein. So if you're someone noticing, just start paying attention when you're eating. When you feel, when you eat beef, when you eat pork, when you eat chicken, do you feel worse? That's a whole loaded, right? We have to dive way deeper into that. But 
it might not be you have to avoid all the acidic foods. It might be you're having a hard time digesting protein and that's causing indigestion because of the whole thing we talked about with the pressure and maldigestion. So I do find that's one where people who just like gravitate towards vegetarian diets, pescatarian diets, they, and it's not, let's say ethical, moral, it's because they know they're not feeling well when they eat it and they feel better when they do not eat protein, like high dense proteins. So that's a really big one. Obviously alcohol, right. Can bother people. We know that's just across the board there, but I personally in practice very rarely put somebody on a low acid diet. If they feel good doing it while we're healing, then let's do it. Let's do what your body is telling us. But I more so try different versions of the elimination diet, if any diet sometimes, depending what the cause is, right? The less food we can restrict, the better, in my opinion. But that's, I don't know if you've found that, but I do find that in my practice at least. And sometimes you say that high fiber foods, if there's other bacterial overgrowth, can cause reflux. So if you're struggling also with something like SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, you might be getting pressure and indigestion because the bacteria is feeding on high fiber foods. So if you eat a bunch of raw salads and you're like, I love Brussels sprouts, I love cabbage, I love onion, and those are your trigger foods, we need to think about the balance of your gut. Do you have SIBO? Another thing where it's essentially in the wrong bacteria in the wrong place, right? Right, right. That is actually more commonly what I see in practice. SIBO as opposed to acid reflux, indigestion. Protein, yeah. Like is the ultimate cause. Actually, I should have asked you this in the very beginning and you started to answer this and I thought, oh, I didn't ask. Explain to people what does stomach acid do and why is it not the devil? Yes. I keep thinking in my head, I'm like, we didn't even start with this. Okay. We didn't even start with acid. Why is it important? (laughs) Well, it's very important. So I think of it like the conductor of all digestion, right? Without your stomach acid, nothing's going to play. That symphony is not going to play, right? So if you have low stomach acid, first of all, you lose your first line of defense towards things like pathogens, right? So we're constantly all day sounds crazy, but putting parasites, putting different things, exposure to bacteria, viruses in our mouth. We are expected we're not going to get infected with it because our stomach acid is going to kill it off in that acidic environment before it can reach your small intestine, large intestine and take place and cause problems, right? So we lose that. We also don't realize a lot of us that our stomach acid is what downstream is going to trigger our production of pancreatic enzymes, of bile. So when you don't need to know all these fancy words, you just need to know that is what's responsible for helping you break down macro and micronutrients, right? Are you breaking down fats, proteins, fiber, carbohydrates? You're not, if you're not potentially, if you have low digestive capacity across the board. So there's a lot of different things like that is your big one. And also, right, not only stimulates all those things, but if you're not digesting food well, like I said, sort of briefly earlier, you eat, I don't know, piece of pizza, weird suggestion, but you're eating a piece of pizza and you're not digesting well, these large like molecules of food are essentially going to make it past the stomach into your intestinal tract. And that is where bacteria, yeast are going to have a feeding frenzy by consuming all these large things. And that's how we get these overgrowths. We always use words like maldigestion, malabsorption, but it's really just picture large things making it when they should be very small and then everything having a field day with it. And they can grow, multiply. You know, it's funny as I saw, she was not a healthcare practitioner at all, but she was just an average girl on TikTok. So don't judge me, first of all, being on TikTok. And she was saying that her practitioner, just while they were waiting for lab results to get back, suggested chewing her food more. And she said, I realize I don't chew my food. I eat super fast. I eat while I'm working. I, I eat with my kids. I eat on the go. I eat on the fly. And I'm constantly telling people, you're not a snake. Chew your food. Like, Don't unhinge your jaw and, and just swallow it whole. But anyway, this girl said she started really, really, really being conscious about chewing her food. And at first it was annoying and 
but she said it made a massive difference in how she felt, in her energy, in her skin, in her sleep, and all the things. And of course, her practitioner was like, yeah, because you were breaking, like you were saying, the big things down to the little things, which means you get your micronutrients, and then you can absorb a whole lot better. And I think we rely so heavily in our, like, uh, I mean, people don't maybe consciously know this, but they're like, oh, I can totally be a snake. I can just shovel it in in two bites and call it good. I've got stomach acid. It'll take care of it. And then they get heartburn. They're missing a whole bunch of micronutrients, their vitamins and minerals and whatnot, because they're not breaking it down. They're wondering why, like, what the heck? Why am I deficient? Like, chew your food. One of those things where we're supposed to chew, what, 30, 40 times each bite, which like, no, right. If someone does that, I'm almost looking at them and I'm like, I don't, I'm guilty. <laughs> my, oh my God. I'm like, God, I just inhaled this. So a lot of us, by a lot of us, most of us are not doing that. Right. And a lot of us are eating under stress or on the go and we're not focusing, which is a whole other, essentially just to kind of touch on that one more stress, which I don't know many Americans that hmm. are not stressed. <laughs> but when we're doing that, we're, you're at work and you're annoyed, right? Let's just pretend you're a clinician and you're like stressed out about how many patients you have. You're like, I have to this down. You don't in that chronic stress moment, right? Your body does not need blood flow and energy in the gut to digest your food. It needs it in your extremities so you can run, fight, do whatever. So you're not going to digest well. So simple, simple things we can do is like deep breaths, four, seven, eight breathing twice, three times before we eat. No one even needs to know you're doing it. You're doing really well, but a lot of people don't, it, that sounds too simple. Do you know what I mean? And it really is that simple sometimes. And it sounds too simple, which is why a lot of people are like, something bigger is going on. It's like, let's start with the basics. Because otherwise this will keep recurring potentially, right? If we don't crack that. I've got this funny story. And so my former boss, who you know, he is a very, was, he, I mean, he is a very fast, we used to travel together. And it was the kind of situation where we would order food, food would get served. And I would be putting my napkin on my lap and arranging my silverware and like getting everything ready to eat. And I would look up and he was on his last bite. Like he had just completely demolished it. So one time we were in a meeting and we got whatever our food was in, was in bowls. And so when I looked up, he had his bowl up too, and he was eating as fast as possible in this meeting. And I remember just very casually reaching over and just pushing the bowl down very gently, just pushing the bowl down. And he was like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I am guilty of it. Because I guess I should chew my food, huh? I was like, yeah, <laughs> chew your food. <laughs> it's like one of the things I realize I'm so guilty of. And I, with my husband, I'll be like, gosh, I'm done. And you've like 75% of your meal. But I think that's like a right somebody who's, I think a lot of healthcare people who are used to working under rush circumstances. Yes. And moms and dads who are used to little kids and they're like- Nurses, teachers, right? Yeah. So I'm so used to like- God, this is why things are going on. <laughs> I need to learn from my husband who I talk to slowly. God. My husband eats really quickly. I'm constantly pointing out, like, I haven't even had my third bite yet. I haven't sat down yet. And you're finished. Yeah, I know. Can you wait? Can you chew your food? Oh my gosh. All right. So besides chewing, what can people do? Everyone's listening, like, all right, got it. Heel drops, maybe abdominal type massage or acupuncture, chiropractic, fascial stuff. Chew my food. What else, when somebody comes in and says indigestion is my primary complaint, how do you evaluate and what do you do? So obviously I'm all about the root cause. You are too, right? Root cause medicine. So I'm all about the root cause, which, so for a lot of my patients, not all of them, but we will do some testing, right? So we might do a stool test that's looking for a lot of things we just talked about, like poor digestive capacity, different infections, different things that could be 
contributing. So I might do something like that or a SIBO breath test and get a start, right? A bigger picture so we can really like nail down. And let's say we find H. pylori, which is a huge contributor to GERD and acid reflux. I want to know that and very intentionally treat that. And sometimes I won't even go crazy on diet because I want to see which thing is affecting somebody more at first. So I do a lot of testing and sometimes, right, if somebody says I am getting, especially females, right, we're getting in certain parts of our cycle and they're like, oh, those two weeks before my period, I get constant reflux and indigestion. Well, I want to look at their progesterone and estrogen levels, right? I want to see if their hormones are balanced or if they're fluctuating out of whack because a lot of people with an imbalance of estrogen and progesterone levels are going to potentially develop even gallbladder issues. They're going to develop reflux, gall bile reflux, possibly if they're having gallbladder issues, which other thing, but I will do some testing. I will, if they are eating really healthfully, we might think about if certain meals, right, start to pay attention. Like it tends to happen with dinner, right? Like I'm having indigestion. It's only with dinner time. Well, what are we eating at dinner time? Let's track that for a little bit and see what might be contributing. Or it's only happening when I wake up in the morning, right? If it's doing that, is it something to do with the way that you're laying? Is it that you're going to bed too early, too close to when you ate, allowing a few hours afterwards, at least? Do you have H. pylori? That's a big one. If it's bothering you over nighttime or when you wake up or away from food. So I do lots of different things from food to stress control, right? We need to talk about that. And of course, there's supplements, right? There's a lot of supplements that we can do in different food is medicine. We can do things literally what I'm drinking right now is traditional medicinal slippery elm tea. So it's called oh, yeah. throat coat and people use it, right? So you'll see in like the winter time, it's like off the shelves because everyone uses it when they're sick, but it's actually something that is fantastic to soothe the gut lining and soothe the individuals who have gastritis or a reflux. And so just doing a cup of this once or twice a day after dinner can be a really helpful tool. It doesn't have to be that brand. I'm just what I'm drinking. I mean, it's a common one and it's relatable because you can find it everywhere. Yeah, it's at, every, it's at every store. Yeah, it's a great brand. So, and some people might do all the things like ginger tea. Everyone's different, right? Like ginger and peppermint can either be friend or foe for a lot of people, I feel. So you just have to try it. It's foe for me. <laughs> usually. Makes me nauseous. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, usually I'm pro supportive of them, but every body is different, right? We need to try, you, all you have to do is try it. See why force it. There's plenty of other options out there. There's like uh, demulcent foods we can add into our diet and bitter foods. I actually have, I don't know if I can, there's like on my website, gutonestruth.com. I put all these in there and anybody can download it. And it's got everything from like probiotic foods, prebiotic foods, demulcents, like bitter foods we can add into helping our gastric lining, helping our digestion and all of that. So versus making everyone have to listen to me less foods, <laughs> but they can be really, really helpful for individuals. So I often, I hope that answered the question. I do, do a lot of testing, but you don't always need to do testing to get started. There's a lot. And I love that you brought up the demulcent stuff too, like slippery elm, because with, well, actually my next question is, so what do the proton pump inhibitors do? And then how is that different? Because I would have patients go, I'm on a proton pump inhibitor. I'm like, oh, that's not healing anything. That's it's not healing anything about your cells. All, it's inhibiting the proton pump. <laughs> we need to heal. <laughs> right. So with proton pump inhibitors, it is essentially just reducing the amount of acid, right? And shutting down the parietal cells, which are going to shoot out the acid and making you feel better. It's not solving the problem, right? It's not figuring out the root as to why this is happening. It could be something, especially if you're struggling with active ulcerations, treating H. pylori, if you have Barrett's esophagus, like there's a time and a place for these medications, right? So don't 
please like speak with your physician before you listen to just like PPIs are always bad. They're not always bad, but for most people, they're not necessary and they're not necessary long-term in my opinion. So one thing that happens is when you're on a PPI long-term, your parietal cells, the things that are going to shoot out the acid are actually going to grow in size, which is the opposite of what you might think is happening. And so what we see is something called rebound acid hypersecretion is when people are on them and then they like, if you're listening, you're going to be like, I've tried to get off them so many times. Right. And it's really, really hard. Everything is like a thousand times worse when I pull them out. And that is something that has been found in the research time and time again, is that it can actually lead to whether it's momentary or long-term, an increase in acid secretion after when you pull out the medication, which is not the goal. Right. Which is why working with somebody like safely just not pull cold turkey is a good idea, but that's what it'll do, right? And you're just temporarily or long-term shutting down your acid production, which is potentially making everything worse, right? That you're trying to fix as the root cause. I mean, there's even literature. I mean, is it black boxed warning for some of them for th- like osteoporosis risk, right? Bone. Yeah, there's also a verse. That's a huge one I see is osteoporosis, with, especially female patients where they're getting older. If they have a history of PPI use, you will see that happening which is really, really scary. I mean, if you don't have the acid to break down the foods that Katie was talking about to get your micronutrients, then how are you going to get your micronutrients? And it affects right potentially how well you digest supplements. So if we're like, oh, well, I'll supplement it. A lot of people have a hard time, like we were kind of mentioning in the beginning of the podcast, is that a lot of people have a hard time breaking the capsules down or using supplements or feel sick when they're using them because they are on a PPI that's reducing their stomach acid and they're not able to like do the process of digestion they need. Yeah. Gosh, that's a really good point. Yeah. Can't always Right. And yeah, in a capsule, in oral anyway, they may be better for liquid or IV or injection or sublingual, which is dissolve under the tongue kind, which is, but unfortunately not everything comes that way. There's some that we can work around, but you, there's not everything. Not everything. Is that option or affordable or easy to use? Yeah. No. And they're usually not wildly affordable if that is the case. Yeah. Yeah. So budget inhibitive. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, as this is the Root Cause Medicine podcast, and we are all about practical and tactical, give us your top like three, two or three tips that you want everybody to walk away from this with. Oh my gosh. I need to think about this. So the top three tips. So if you, I'm just winging stuff here, guys. So if you are on, if you've either been told you're going to need to go on a proton pump inhibitor or an H2 blocker or something like that, or you're living on a bottle of Tums, or if you've been on one, I highly, highly encourage you to seek out somebody to get a second, third opinion, whatever it is. You can look for practitioners on something like Institute for Functional Medicine, and they have a find the practitioner link. Does not need to be from there. That's just a good, reputable source. And talk to them because they will help you find alternative ways, whether it's testing or food or handling stress supplements that can be as supportive or even more supportive sometimes than things like PPIs in healing your gastritis and your acid reflux. So I don't know if everyone knows that is out there. And there are people who take insurance. There's people who don't take insurance. Like I highly, highly recommend doing that because otherwise it's going to be a long road potentially when you have an answer. I think the stress and chewing piece is honestly super important. And I think it doesn't get enough play because it's not sexy. Like people don't want to talk about it. But if you can just take three times a day, right? It can take two minutes before your meals or if you have moments of stress, trying something like, and you can 
easily YouTube or Google some of this, like four, seven, eight breathing, or you can do tapping. I used to do that all the time because people can't tell you're doing it and I'd be stressed out. So things like that, that you can take a moment before you eat and reset your sympathetic and parasympathetic system so that you can digest like rest and adjust a little bit better. It might make a world of difference. And if you're like, wow, I chew five times per bite right now, like just aim for 10. You don't have to aim for 40. Let's just make small incremental changes because when you start to feel better, you're going to want to do more, right? It's like a smart. And when you say tapping, are you, do you mean like emotional freedom technique type tapping? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. EFT. Yeah. It's a really good one. And you don't have to do all the different spots. You can just find the one that works for you because some people don't, right? Stress hits them in, in opportune times and it will be like, they're about to do a lecture. They're about to talk to their boss and it's things you can do where, I mean, you're maybe not doing it full heartedly, like the whole process, but you can do stuff and calm yourself if that's something that that works for you. And if it's eating in a restaurant, I don't know, when you're stressed out about food choices, that happens all the time to people. So I would look, and there's plenty of different choices. It doesn't have to be those two. They just came to mind. And then another tip, let's see. I I know this topic's not about this, but one thing I would push harder into learning more or ruling out H. pylori because it is really, right? It's a common bacterial infection. Over 50% of the population has it worldwide. It recurs for like 80% of the population. It is probably the number one thing I do in practice is work with that. And it makes, it is, I honestly was thinking about this this week, is probably the number one game-changing thing I've done in gut health is learn more and more about H. pylori. I used to be like, oh, SIBO, like all these things. And it's, people are tested and tests are not all created equal. The levels, like you can have a little bit and feel terrible. You can have a lot and not know it. So I just would encourage you to actually maybe seek out that more if you're having long-term gastritis issues and GERD. And really, do you have a favorite way to test H. pylori? My favorite way is using the GI map, which I know offers. So, right, there's urea breath test, there's stool antigen testing, there's blood testing. They all biopsy, right, can is a bit invasive, but if you're going in, why not? The GI map is just a stool test that patients can do at in the comfort of their own home. You can actually test for H. pylori by itself if financially it's an issue. And it is probably the most sensitive. It picks up the lowest amounts. It's actually not to get too sciencey, but there's the bacteria can actually like morph into different shapes. And one of them is unculturable. It doesn't produce urea, meaning you can't pick it up on a breath test. And one of the only tests on the market that will find it is the GI map. And you show it in really low forms and you're like, oh man, you get your test result back and it's showing a really low form. And you're like, that's not the problem. Oh, it's very much probably the problem. It's having a hard time detecting it because it's protecting itself from being attacked. So GI map, lots of people are using them these days. I highly recommend it. And I was at a microbiome conference, is in the company microbiome, not the area of topic, although that was their area of topic. And there was a whole lecture on H. pylori and the risk for developing autoimmune and the emerging literature around that. Because H. pylori, unless you're symptomatic or maybe you've developed ulcers, there's mixed thought out there of, oh, you're just a carrier. Oh, you keep testing positive, you're, quote, just a carrier. So it's not bothering you. You don't have heartburn or symptoms. You're fine. And the speaker at the microbiome conference was like, actually, they are where there's more literature coming out around H. pylori and the development of autoimmune. And I was like, dang. It is. I like, if you want to see me nerd out, that is the topic because it is, I mean, everything is, we need so much more research and is poorly understood at this point, in my opinion. But when I first started and I was already an institute of functional medicine practitioner. I was taught when I've been using the GI map since the day it came out that if it was low, you don't touch it, right? It's not an infection. Like, so there were 
hundreds, thousands of people I was not treating at all for this overgrowth because I was taught a certain way. And I kept having these really challenging cases. And I was like, let me just start looking into the research, like see, and I would find these crazy like diagnoses that nobody, they've seen 10 specialists can do anything about. But I'm like, thrombocytopenia, oh my gosh, there's so much research on H. pylori. And I'd be like, did anybody ever treat this test result you had three years ago? And they're like, no. I'm like, why don't we just try? Because the treatment naturally, at least, is actually fairly benign for most people. Some of the products you use, you use like honey. You know what I mean? Like you very supportive foods, not just honey, it's not work, but it's basically like different probiotics and prebiotics and honey and nasty gum things can be really helpful for anyone with gastritis, period, and ulcerations, also H. pylori. So if you work with your provider, it really can be something that's potentially a short-lived treatment, pretty safe, and you'll know fairly quickly if, if you're getting better, honestly. Well, this is good because... Again, there's that, like, that controversy of, just like you said, well, you're just a carrier. If it's low levels, it's not such a big deal, especially if you're not symptomatic. And I, my, I was taught the same thing you were taught. And my mind, after going to that conference and seeing some of that new literature come out, I was like, oh, no, we're doing a 180. Like, this is a problem. <laughs> Let's, we are not about autoimmune over here. Oh, gosh, I'm glad you're coming to my team here. No, I would just start doing it with people. I mean, obviously, if you're like spending the money and time and energy to do a stool test, most likely there's something else going on than just each belly. So even if you find it, a lot of the things you can utilize are beneficial for other things you may find. And so you can not always, but tag team that. And I just watch person after person feel better. And I just really was like, I want to learn more and educate other practitioners about this because it is essentially simple. It's not, it's not simple, but thing that we can be doing in practice or asking our clinicians about, asking our PCPs, our GIs about looking into more to resolve chronic gastritis, chronic acid reflux. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. That's so helpful. I love it. Especially if you have history of ulcers, right? People will be like, I have a history of an ulcer, but like I didn't have H. pylori. Dive deeper. Right. Because probably did. <laughs> probably. That's my little tip. Maybe not the tip you wanted, but I I can't not say it. No, that was actually a great, because I know that is also going to hit home for a lot of people who have maybe been told or diagnosed in the past or suspected it based on what they saw online or their own research and maybe been blown off or maybe they did do the triple antibiotic treatment, but never got any follow-up thinking they're fine and, but still feel some symptoms. It'd be good for them to go get reevaluated in that case. So being proactive again, I said I'm practical and tactical. So this is great. I want people to be proactive and, and it's something that everybody across the board, right? Meeting practitioner-wise, from traditional healthcare to PCPs to GI to dietitians, nutrition, we all know what it is. So it's not a conversation where you're trying to talk to your doctor about something that they might not be familiarized with. Because right, I think it's a good piece of information. Everybody, yeah, absolutely for sure. All right. Well, Katie, as we wrap up, where can people find you? Tell us all the things, social, website, podcast, everything. Thankfully, it's all just gut honest truth. So GUT is gut what we're talking about, but I'm mostly on Instagram at gut honest truth. My website is guthonesttruth.com and you can find everything from my podcast to, I have eBooks on acid reflux on there, which can be really, really helpful for you, but you can find me really normal on Facebook. Not as much. <laughs> I'm there. Older me is there. But yeah, so I talk a lot about it and I try to give a lot of good free information away to educate people. And are you seeing patients? I am. And we end up another clinician as well. We both are taking new patients right now. Amazing. Because I know that's going to be a big question that people are going to have. Yes, but can I see her? Is she available? Yes, you can. You can. You can actually easily request 
sessions right from the website or user contact form if you want to make sure it's a good fit. Gotthonesttruth.com. Well, thank you so much for being on the Root Cause Medicine podcast today. This has been so helpful, such great information. Like I said, actionable. And I think people are really going to take away a lot, especially if they've been thinking their indigestion is no big deal, or even at the very end, their H. pylori is no big deal and turns out it's a very big deal. Comes with a lot of risks and there's a lot you can do. So thank you. Thank you. This was great. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.